Hello, listeners. This is Gerard Robinson. Welcome back to another wonderful week with Kara and I on The Learning Curve. As you know, every single week, I mean every single week, we bring you top-of-line information about education and about things in society. And I could, of course, I could never do this without the young, the bold, and the beautiful Kara Kandel. Oh, young, bold, and beautiful. Like Yes, I always say great things about you. Always, yes. Young, bold. Let's emphasize the young. Who's who's younger on this podcast, Gerard? I'm younger in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you need a nap during the day, my friend. It's okay. Exactly. It's because you're so young. It's all right, Gerard. I'm I'm right there with you. Listeners, we're joking um, about age because Gerard was making fun of me earlier, but that's okay. And of course, we're recording this today on the anniversary of George Floyd's death, which I know um, is causing many of us just to sort of take a deep breath and, and reflect on what a year it's been um, with, with you know, a lot of <laughs> tumult, sadness, but also some progress and joy, uh, Gerard. So I don't know. We've got, um, I think you have, I think you have a depressing story and I've got, I've got kind of a, uh, maybe a peppier story of the week. So shall I, shall I start there? My, my young friend? Yes. Pep us up youngster. (laughs) Well, you know, it's not many of us that would find summer school peppy or, or light in, in fact, in most cases, kids, um, uh, it, it, it's a bad thing to be told you're going to summer school. But my story of the week is about the fact that it's entitled, actually, 13,000 kids will be in summer school in New Orleans, triple the normal amount. So what I love about this article um, by Della Hassel um, from, where is she writing from here? I got to figure it out, Gerard, uh, from New Orleans News, I guess. Um She's talking about the fact that, you know, using a mix of sort of local donor funding and some ARP funds, some recover- some federal stimulus money, um, New Orleans is going to be running summer school for pretty much anybody who wants it. And boy, kids are signing up like enroll normal um, summer school enrollment. Kids are opting in so that. Just this week, more than 13,000 students are expected to attend some form of summer school. And what some of the folks who run New Orleans great schools, charter schools, district schools, and district schools are charter schools in New Orleans, I suppose, um, are saying is that, you know, kids are actually clamoring from this. They're, they're really clamoring for more in-person learning. So um, it's it's a good one to watch. I think I'm really curious, you know, um, our friend Marguerite Rosa just came out with a report the other day looking at how districts are spending ARP funds and mm-hmm. <laughs> not all of them are according to our friends at the Edgenomics Lab, spending them in a way that is probably going to directly impact student learning or instruction, at least not yet. So we're looking to see more positive ways of doing this. I also want to say, Gerard, that as we read more and more articles about kids going to summer school, taking advantage of summer learning opportunities, I really hope that districts, charters, and others are going to think about tailoring the instruction to what kids need. Um, Another great report out today by TNTP, actually out earlier this week, that gets at some of the work they've done on acceleration and what they're saying, and I think it's a, a particularly important point, is that as we think about, you know, helping kids air quotes, recover lost learning, we need to remember that remediation isn't always the way to go, that sometimes what we need to do is provide kids with challenging grade level content that's going to engage them. And yeah, you know, some kids have, um, didn't, 
have exposure to as much content in this past year as they might have in, in other years. But there are ways to accelerate learning without taking kids back and engaging in remediation. We got we to meet them where they are and challenge them because if this is any indication, kids want to be in school and that tells me they want to be challenged. So I think at the end of the day, this is a pretty feel-good story. No, it is a feel-good story. I'm a big proponent of summer learning, whether it's playing outside, whether it's sports-related, whether it's a little bit of sport, a little bit of academics or full academics. Uh, we do that with, uh, with our girls. Uh, when I was in high school back in the uh, Stone Age, uh, I would involve myself primarily in sports, but uh, this is good. And for New Orleans, I mean, that's, you know, that city for the last 20 years, they've made some major gains. And I believe what you just uh, shared is going to be a, a nice step in the right direction. And as you said, yes, my story is uh, not as uh, peppy and, and light. And here's why. Uh, this is from Tarnell Hobbs. It's from May 12th, 2021 edition of the Wall Street Journal. The title will tell you everything you need to know. Cheating at schools is easier than ever, and it's rampant. So imagine if you're Tyler Johnson, uh, you work for North Carolina State University, and you're concerned that your students are cheating. Uh, they're all online, and you can't prove it. And so what he decided to do was to use a computer program that generated a unique set of questions for each student. And lo and behold, those questions quickly showed up on the website of a for-profit uh, homework company that helped him identify who posted it. When he went through the list, he identified that 200 students were cheating, one fourth of his class, but that's just at North Carolina State. The article also identified that there has been a 50% increase in cheating allegations uh, in the fall of last year from Texas A&M. One incident involved 193 students who self-reported uh, reported academic misconduct in order to receive a lighter punishment. Uh, some of us know that there was an online calculus exam cheating scandal uh, at West Point and there are other examples. So in the pandemic, of course, people are learning online and they're trying to find ways of getting ahead. And so this has done two things. Number one, it's opened up an opportunity for companies, both nonprofit and for-profit, to uh, get in, not to help people cheat, but in fact, to help people learn. So you take a company out of Scottsdale, Arizona. It's called uh, Proctorio, and it proctored 21 million exams in 2020 worldwide. Guess what? A year ago, how many did they proctor? Six million. So wow. a major, major increase in Hoover, Alabama, uh, Proctor U said that students are finding unique ways to cheat. <laughs> you know, they provide, it's not funny, but it is when you hear it. one student actually uh, used a uh, sticky note to put on his dog uh, as a way of walking around to figure things out. Another student used a drone camera to take images of tests to get it around. And one female student who sneezed. Come on, that guy gets an A+. Suddenly, disappeared from view and what and who reappeared a man wearing a blonde wig trying to impersonate her so things have gotten pretty interesting so that's one side of the fence on the other side of the fence their students are actually going online uh putting out a bid to say i would love for you to work on my literature paper or my philosophy paper or my mathematics paper and people are making bids uh as low as in the article 389 dollars and 62 cents up to one bid of over two thousand and so, you know, companies like Brainly, uh, their user base grew to 350 million users monthly in 2020. Last year, they had 200 million. 
and Chegg, a publicly, publicly held company in Santa Clara, California. In fact, I heard them give a pitch many years ago. They're doing quite well. The company saw a total net revenue of $644 million in 2020, up 57% from last year. And so the article really just goes on to say that it's pretty rampant that people are using uh, AI to identify it. And so there are two questions that we have to ask. A, is the pandemic encouraging people to cheat or have people been cheating all along? And it's just that the pandemic and the use of AI has actually identified that this has been going on for a long time. What are your thoughts? I want to know, Gerard, have you ever cheated on test? Yes. Yeah, me too. Yep. In like fifth grade, fifth grade, Mrs. Michaelis's class. And I asked my friend, he's still, I think, uh, I spoke with him. Probably has been too long, but pretty recently, this guy. And um I asked him for the answers on the math test, and, and he gave them to me, and then I broke down and had a crisis of conscience and told the teacher that I did it. <laughs> but, you know, I would add another question to your questions, Gerard, and that is, like, in do we need AI and all these companies to fight people using AI and other, let's say what it is, really creative methods of cheating on tests, or do we need to reevaluate what we're assessing and mm. what people need to be able to demonstrate an assessment. And I'm going to give you an example. So like I, I'm constantly telling my kids, yes, you need to memorize your multiplication tables. I'm sorry. It's just the thing you need to do. It's actually going to serve you well in life. Right. I, I firmly believe that call me terrible rote learning mommy. I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's important. But on the other hand, I have a friend right now who decided to go back to graduate school during the pandemic. And she is in, um, like, um, what do you call it? Um, a physiology program. And, you know, there, she's not allowed to use an open book exam on her. I'm taking it at home online exam. And she's got to memorize, I don't know how many different muscles and bones in the body. I'm married to a doctor. And let me tell you something. He could not tell you all of those things. <laughs> He's going to go look it up. And so sometimes I wonder, like, maybe we should be knowing that we're in this brave new world, you know, figuring out what are those things that people absolutely have to prove that they have knowledge of to walk in the world, to succeed in their jobs, to, to do well. That's that, that you have. Yeah, you have to know it without support. And then what things should you actually be using support so that you can push your learning further? Like, does it really matter? Do I need a pop quiz? Do I have to know every single, the name of every single teeny, teeny, incy, wincy bone in the body? I don't know. I don't know. No, that's actually a really good point uh, about assessment and what we're doing. Um, it says a lot. I won't uh, throw any moral shade uh, and say that the students today cheat more than maybe students 20 years ago. Uh, cheating has been rampant. Uh, and not only in higher ed, we saw, of course, when I lived in Atlanta, no correlation, a major uh, cheating scandal in that city, oh, which yep. really rocked uh, the reputation of the superintendent, who I happened to know when she was in Newark and uh, the number of educators who were involved, police and everything else. So I do think as adults, we have to look at this through the lens of why. And what if? So good story. I would uh, recommend people read it. And it's rare that we ever talk about something like this, but I just found it interesting because I think it's uh, it's bigger than we we know. And this, of course, was in the Wall Street Journal. And of course, no one on Wall Street cheats. That's another story. No, ne never, never. 
One of these days, I want to have on somebody who can talk about cheating on Wall Street, but also how we need to better design the assessments of the future to hold us accountable for teaching kids what they need to know, but also to be compatible with what is a brave new world of teaching and learning. So um, coming up after this, Gerard, we're going to talk to somebody who actually thinks about other worlds quite a bit <laughs> or, <laughs> or this world and things that none that the rest of us really don't think about much in this world quite a bit. But we are going to be talking to Dr. Farouk Albas, and he is uh, a retired Boston University professor. He's worked for NASA, run the Center for Remote Sensing at BU. It's going to be a cool trip with him. I'm very excited. So we'll be back in just a moment. Learning Curve listeners, we are back with Dr. Farouk Albaz. He is a retired research professor and director of the Center for Remote Sensing at Boston University, right down the street. His research has resulted in important advances in archaeology, geology, and geography. In 1966, Dr. Albaz participated in the first discovery of the first offshore oil in the Gulf of Suez. From 1967 to 1972, he was supervisor of lunar science planning for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, otherwise known as NASA's Apollo program. And from 1973 to 1982, he established and directed the Center for Earth and Planetary Studies at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. From 1978 to 1981, Dr. Albaz was science advisor to Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt. And he's conducted field investigations in every major desert in the world and is known for his pioneering work in using space images to explore for groundwater in arid lands. He is credited with the discovery of groundwater resources in Egypt, Somalia, Sudan, Oman, and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. In 1999, the Geological Society of America Foundation established the Farouk Albaz Award for Desert Research to encourage and reward excellence in arid land studies worldwide. Dr. Albaz has participated in projects with the Smithsonian, the National Science Foundation, International Astronomical Union, and UNESCO, and he is president of the Arab Society of Desert Research. Among the many awards Dr. Albaz has received, they include the Apollo Achievement Award, Exceptional Scientific Achievement Medal, and Special Recognition Award, all from NASA. Dr. Farouk Albaz, welcome to The Learning Curve. And I have to say, um, my kids are going to be more excited about this show than any other we've ever done before <laughs> to talk to you about such a such a fascinating and varied career. Welcome. How Thank are you, you today? Thank you very much. That introduction, I'm excited because of that, too. <laughs> Fantastic. We're glad to hear it. So, you know, this is going to be, this topic is going to be new for our listeners. And we are a show, of course, about education. We often talk about education policy and I'm so excited for you to educate us today on, on so much of so many of the fascinating things that you've done. So you've had a really varied and pioneering career in the sciences. Um, can you talk a little bit with our listeners? I think everybody wants to know about NASA's Apollo program first. So what was it like supervising the science planning for this work? I mean, that was this is a world-changing project, putting a man on the moon. It was really fabulous. Here we were. <laughs> in a sentence. <laughs> yes. We were geologists. That we knew exactly what to do about the Earth go to the field, pick up some rocks, look at the thin sections and by using the microscope and tell you the history of that rock. But here is the moon so far away from us. We have no idea what it's like. We have no idea what the features are like. 
who, what, how did the features form, and how could we actually begin to understand them? We could only see some pictures of these. And actually, we had about 2,200 pictures. And the uh, reason for my being able to rise up within the NASA hierarchy is the fact that I started with looking at each and every one of these 2,200 images and summarizing what I see in each and every one on a piece of paper and kept them all in a record right next to me, right on top of my desk, so I can refer to them anytime. Uh, I joined the NASA in, in uh, March 1967, and NASA had a meeting of all the people from the sciences that are interested in the Apollo missions to uh, begin selecting where do we land on the moon. So they said, okay, we need to form a lunar landing site selection committee. So all of the geologists, all of the chem geochemists and geophysicists, all of the people that were interested applied and so on. There were a whole bunch of people within NASA, within the U.S. Geological Survey, and from some uh, universities from the East Coast, from the West Coast, from everywhere. So there was about 82 people that were selected for this meeting in September 1967. That's only like seven months after I joined NASA. And we sat down for three days talking about what is it that we would want to know from the moon and where do we go for the very first time. So we sat and we discussed it and we decided on what where would we go. And the group, that 78 experts, selected me as their secretary. So because they said, Farouk is the one that can talk to the NASA engineers. He can explain to them why, why do we want to go to this place versus that. So they selected me the secretary of the Lunar Landing Site Selection Committee. And that really is, was the event that launched me throughout the Apollo program. Wow. So you were you were a translator of sorts <laughs> between, <laughs> between the landing committee and and, and uh, the rest of NASA. That's fascinating. Can can you talk a little bit about some of that? What exactly what were the key factors that led to deciding where the lunar landing site? What what were the big key factors in deciding in picking that site? Number one, the safety of the astronauts. Because if they land where there is a, a very rough terrain, they might hit something, they might ruin something in the spacecraft, and they would not be able to launch, and they would die. So that was the major, 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 major consideration, the safety of the astronauts. Then we had to counter some ideas about the lunar surface from very uh, great scientists that were spokesmen, about their ideas, and they escaped everything and everybody. The first one said that the moon was formed about four billion years ago, like the Earth, and then it was bombarded by meteorite impacts to the extent that it is now covered by powder. There is no place to land on the moon. As soon as the astronauts the, the spacecraft teaches hits the surface, it will start to go into the, the soil, it will be swallowed by the, and will never be seen, seen from it again. And he was a very loud physicist, 
British originally, <laughs> and he sent his ideas to the senators, to the heads of NASA, to everybody, and to the newspapers, New York Times published it and all of that. So we had this one guy that kept on saying that the moon is covered by powder from all of the meteorite impacts, and no one will land except, except to, to be swallowed within the dust, a thick layer of dust. Wow. And there is another one. And he was a, a prize, a Nobel Prize winner, chemist who said that all of the dark areas of the moon are covered, are, are material from the impact of meteorites, and these are very highly magnetic things, and the spacecraft is going to land and will never be able to launch because it will stick there because of the magnetism. So this was also so we had people, a great scientist to say the covered the moon is covered by powder. <laughs> the others to say the moon is covered is covered by magnets that would not allow the spacecraft to move. So that is aside because because that was something that we had to deal with politically, kind of, because <sighs> most of the NASA headquarters people, the big wigs, would say, oh, how, how, what do you say about such and such? And what do you say about this one? And, but we knew how to talk to them. And then we had within our group, the, the, the scientists, we had people that wanted to go to the higher level, the higher attitudes, so that we can uh, sample rocks from different materials and, and not necessarily go to the something that's, that's easy. And the engineers came up and we say, okay, we, for the first few missions, they said for the first four missions, we give you only a strip within the lunar equator area, only 45 east and 45 south or west. Wow. You cannot go beyond that. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. And only <laughs> five degrees north and only five degrees south. This is it. It's a little strip right on the equator of the moon. You can go either, you can go beyond either on the east or the west or north or south, period. This is the zone. This is the, that's, they called it the Apollo zone. No, nobody's going to land beyond that. So we had we we knew that at least the first mission had to be within that zone, and then we realized that perhaps the first and the second too. And we decided that's okay, that's good. We actually wanted to land one on the east side of the moon within the planes because of the fact that it is there is a certain color of the dark material on the of the surface of the moon, and then one on the left or west side of the moon where there is a different color. So we thought okay. The, the moon is made of two types of things, dark material and light color highlands. The dark material is the flats. And we want to, and the dark material, the flats, are both darker, the one is darker and one is lighter, and the east is darker and the left, the one in the west is lighter, good, so we can fix at least the first and the second mission within the Apollo zone, one in the darker material and one in the lighter material. So we went along with the engineers for the first uh, two missions. It's amazing. Well, I'm glad at least there was no argument that the moon is that part of the moon was made of cheese because <laughs> that would be. <laughs> Before I know, you know, we want to save time to talk about the fascinating uh, what you might call second phase of your career. But before we go there, could you speak to some of the 
scientists who influenced you, whether they were at NASA or before your time at NASA, um, that sort of um, pushed you into the second phase of your career in in remote sensing? Uh, before, actually, before uh, I got into NASA, there was one uh, teacher of uh, of economic geology in uh, at Ain Shams University in Egypt, Murad Ibrahim Yusuf, and he was a wonderful pr- professor because he, rather than teaching us standing there and talking, he came in and listed names of things on the on the blackboard, long more than the number of students we were we were twenty two and so he said he, he wrote twenty five names, and he said each and every one will pick up one of these to work on it all semester long, any material from the ones that he listed. I picked something that I had never heard of, diatomites. And <laughs> he himself said to me, why do you think that one? I said, because I never heard of it. Because the others are lead and zinc and copper and iron oxide and all of that, things that were burned. But this one was something I had never heard of. So he said, that is great. I, I I do not know that much about it, but I will help you gain as much knowledge about it as possible. And he did, and they did very well, and I got an A. So that was a very positive thing. Then another teacher in at the Missouri School of Mines, where I went for my master's degree, Paul Dean Proctor, who was a, a structural geologist, and he was teaching us about the tectonics of the Earth. And he came and he said, this course is going to be about tectonics. Here are lists of things that all of you will have to pick up some from them. And he started listing structures, structural names. And one of the things was tectonics of the moon. I also selected that, <laughs> not knowing that I would spend my career looking at the moon. But this was in graduate school before any lunar in the early 60s. And he said, and why did you select that? He said, I said, because there is no way that we know anything about the the, the tectonics of the moon. He said, good, I'm going to, I have one picture of the moon. I will give it to you. You look at it, and then you tell me what you, what you think. And I did, and he gave me an A. But all of the things that I said were all wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> so, and, and then the one in NASA time was uh, Jean Shoemaker. He was the man that the geologist who uh, campaign with NASA to start a uh, part of the geological survey, the U.S. geological survey, to support NASA, and they 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 accepted his push, and made the division of astrogeology, meaning geologists that will look at the structures of the features of the Moon and the Mars and and so on, and uh, and he is the one that told us about impact craters because he had studied an impact crater in uh, in Arizona called Meteor Crater. Everybody knows that it was a meteor that hit the surface of the desert, and then a circular hole was formed and blocks around it, and he studied it in detail, and he is the one that taught us about that from soil. It was really something that to work with Gene Shoemaker, who kind of uh, allowed us to think about the round things on the moon as the result of impacts of, of bodies, like meteorites. Well, Professor, speaking about your second phase and your groundbreaking career, I made a note that when you mentioned that, you know, your first uh, big move into this area was in 1966. And I remember that uh, Carol was probably in the fifth grade by then. So this means a lot to her. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, uh-huh. science. 
<laughs> okay, it was a seventh grade, but I, I didn't, I didn't want to out you. So okay. let's talk about using remote sen uh, sensing and space images to explore uh, water underground. And you've done this among some of the largest deserts on Earth. Would you share how remote sensing technology works and your experience in surveying the moon and how this informed your search of water uh, in arid lands on our planet? Great. That was actually a, a, a very interesting initiation due to a meeting with President Anwar Sadat of Egypt. Upon the end of the Apollo program, I was asked by the U.S. government to go to the Gulf states, the Arab states of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, and UAE, Bahrain, and so on, all of them, to talk about the Apollo program results. So I went as a kind of approchement between the US and the Arab countries. And that did not include Egypt. And President Sadat of Egypt was disgusted <laughs> that I, did, I went to all of these Arab countries and did not visit Egypt first. So he actually invited me to go and see him, and I went to uh, uh, visit with him. And he told me that he would like me to start some research in Egypt. And uh, he said, I know that you will have problems working with these people here locally, but go wherever you wish to go and work with whoever you wish to work with. And when you have problems, come to me personally. I will solve these problems for you. There is a president of a country that's, that's telling me that. So I left his meeting and I went directly to my alma mater, Ancham's University in Cairo. I met with one of my older professors, <coughs> the one that had given me the diatomites <laughs> as, a, as a topic to study in, in, uh, in economic geology. And I started a program. I said, I have money from the Smithsonian Institution to begin to look at the, the places that the Apollo Soyuz mission is going to fly over. There was a, an American-Russian mission called Apollo-Soyuz uh, mission, and I was the, the chief trainer for that mission and the uh, one responsible for all the photography and the observations by the astronauts and so on on that mission. So I thought that, okay, the astronauts are going to fly over the Earth and particularly over the desert belt of North Africa, including Egypt, and perhaps we should understand that the desert before they fly over so we can ask them to do additional things for us. And they did. So we started as a research project uh, about two years before the Apollo Soyuz mission. And we began to look at all kinds of places in the deserts in Egypt. And, and I used to, after each, every trip, I used to go to President Sadat and talk to him about it. And, and he kind of mentally uh, added them more in his mind. And when he came to the United, to the United States and during 19... 78 during the uh, his discussion for the peace with Israel, uh, he called me and he said, I, I just announced and that uh, that I made you a science advisor. And one of the things that you want to do for me is to select places in the desert for development. That is really what initiated all the research in the deserts in Egypt first, and then we extended all the way through to Africa and the Arabian Peninsula and the desert of India and China and so on, because we found out there were all kinds of fascinating things. First of all, 
I realized that what made sand was running surface water. There is no other mechanism in geology to make sand, all of the sand in all our, our beaches worldwide, and all the sand in all the deserts of the whole world, or everything, all the sand on the earth. The only way you're producing that geologically is rainwater. Water falls, it breaks the rock, the rock hits each other, each other separate the individual minerals, and then they break the, the pieces together in the bottom of the rivers. They, they, the, the powdered material rolls over each other in turbulent flow, and all of this rolling around forms a round shape of, of, of the, the, the silicon dioxide, which is sand. So when I thought to myself that all of this sand was formed by rain, water, staying on the surface, some of that water, yes, was evaporated. Some of it went to the sea and the land, but some of it must have been seeping through the rock below the surface to be kept as groundwater. And that's what started the whole initiation of that research. Thank you. 21 years ago, I traveled to Cairo, Egypt, uh, with a group of about 50 people from the U.S., uh, a number of them were academics, some were graduate students. What was amazing to me, it was my first time to Cairo, uh, are the number of people I met in the city and throughout our travels who were engineers or chemists or biologists or mathematicians. And you know, you've worked in this field, um, you know, you know, along with going with the role you played in understanding the Earth and the cosmos. As a professor and as an educator who's worked in this field, um, what mathematic and scientific background knowledge is required today to do higher level science? And how can we better prepare students in the US for STEM fields? Just making them, making that, that, that material appealing, making that appealing rather than saying that, oh, it is difficult to, to go into this mathematical calculation and whatnot. Yeah, just make examples of one plus one equals two. It is no big deal. Make it, make it as, as, as simplistic as you, as you possibly can. It is, it's badly introduced at, to all levels. It's actually badly introduced in, in Egypt too, but the Egyptians are better prepared because of their history, because they, the ancient Egyptians way back then had looked into all of the, the nature of the earth and figured out the rotation of the earth and figured out the days of the, of the year and the, uh, the, the solar variations and the way the earth revolves around the sun and what all of it. So there has been a very long history of, of calculations and scientific endeavors in ancient Egypt. So I think that it is easier for people in the East, first in Egypt and then perhaps in, also in India, there was some in China, who had started looking into these kinds of things way back. But here in the US, we didn't. We don't have that history. We have people coming from everywhere, and some of them know something, and some did not. So we need to first start with simplifications of all of the theories and all of the ideas, and present them to the students in the early stages as simplistic things. Get them two plus two equals four. And because here is in their fingers. And from there, you can move easier rather than scaring them that you will not understand it and be difficult to calculate at, 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 at the beginning, because that's how it is introduced everywhere, I, I think. Thank you. Well, 
Karen and I thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, learned a lot, not only about the earth, but also the role that technology plays in helping us look beneath its surface. But you also bring into the conversation something we often forget um, is the role of discovery um, uh, and the role that some call the Middle East, but the role that some of the Arab nations played in the 60s and the 70s in helping advance technologies in ways we often don't understand. So thank you again for joining us and we look forward to a, another conversation in the future. Thank you very much. So Kara, my tweet of the week is from my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, Ian Rowe, a really smart guy, smart social entrepreneur. On May 21st, he sent out a tweet. It's called Red, White, and Black. It's a new book and a panel discussion on how a more complete telling of the Black American experience can empower youth of all races to overcome the victimhood narrative. And he was in a conversation with uh, several people. Uh, in fact, Red, White, and Black is the title of a book um, that he uh, and several others uh, have written uh, about to talk about where we are with race and education. Uh, and there's one person who's a part of this conversation named Bob Woodson, who I know. Uh, who in 1987, when I was a freshman at Howard in my first semester, spoke about poverty and what we could do to change it. And he is a conservative. Uh, he's proud of it. He's been involved in anti-poverty campaigns for over 40 years. He played a pretty big role in working with Paul Ryan when he was speaker of the House of Representatives to say, if you want to be a speaker and if you really want to tackle poverty, travel with me for more than a year and I can show you what works and what doesn't work. And so people, of course, will blow off um, the book because in the subtitle, it uses the term race hustlers. And it's a term he's used for years, uh, but it's worth the read. I say it's worth going to AEI and uh, taking a look at the event. You don't have to agree with everything, but I can tell you for a fact, there are few people in the United States, black, white, Native American, Hispanic, Asian or other who've actually dedicated their time at the ground level, working with regular people to talk about poverty and not to talk about poverty just for the sake of poverty, but to move people, as I say, from poverty to prosperity. So that is my tweet of the week. And I'm glad my uh, AEI colleague, Ian Rose, part of the effort. Yeah, thanks for that. It is certainly um, thought-provoking work. And I have to say, I was poking around on that website just, just yesterday, um, looking at what they have to offer. And I would certainly join you in encouraging our listeners to um, to listen in and, and to read and, and to learn. And like you said, even if you don't agree with everything, there's always something to learn. And I hope that we can continue to have an open mind and civil dialogue about stuff because it's really, really important. I just thought about something. As we're doing this right now, our friend Darrell Bradford at 50CAN ah, has just been named the new president of 50CAN. Congratulations, so my brother. You remembered. Congratulations, Darrell. We're both very happy for you and lucky to work with you and learn from you. And hopefully we'll have to have him back on the learning curve again pretty soon. In fact, yeah, you had him during the golden age of uh, learning curve when I wasn't on and Bob and you were just making hay and moving forward. So sorry about that, Darrell. You know what? I think I was actually, 
<laughs> Jarrell will come back to the, I was going to say, I think I was actually, might've been on vacation the day we interviewed Jarrell. So <laughs> now we really have to have him back. Really got to have him back. I'm learning curve 2.0. All right. So we're going to make that happen. Jarrell, we'll know if he's listening. We'll see if he emails tomorrow. We'll see. We'll see if he actually listens. All right. But next week, we do have a guest already lined up for next week, Gerard, and we're excited about her. Um, I've done a little bit of work with her, actually reached out to her for advice uh, around a school that I was working with. We're going to be speaking with Heather Staker. She is an adjunct researcher for the Christensen Institute and president of Ready to Blend. So I bet you we can ask Heather Staker some pretty interesting questions about about cheating online, what assessments should look like, what blended learning Uh, looks like. It'd be so. So, uh, kiss your brain, and we'll come back to that next week. Until then, Gerard, get enough rest, take care of yourself. Uh huh. Uh huh. I know because you know, getting old, it's no joke. So, you really gotta, you gotta be careful, my friend. Okay? Well, I'm walking to get my apricot and uh, avocado <laughs> scrub. <laughs> Fantastic. I'll take see care. you next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.